This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, everyone. Happy long weekend to those of you that don't work in a job that requires you work every long weekend. Um, You know, the long weekend's a funny thing, right? And by the way, it's a nice weekend out today, so clearly I didn't pray hard enough for rain. I'm kidding. Um, Last week we talked about miracles in the book of Acts, and I I do want to just highlight a few things. Um, Many of you came down saying, I need a miracle, and I talked to many of you during the week saying, yeah, I need a miracle. In fact, I think we talked about how really, at most times in our life, it's a miracle if you don't need a miracle. That's really what it means to be human. And man, God is so good. He just shows up for us all the time. That's the amazing thing about the Lord and uh, God healing people's bodies and fixing their relationships. God is a good God. Now, I came in, I, Dave mentioned kids camp, and I know our kids pastors were praying for a miracle <laughs> uh, a number of weeks ago, just a few weeks before camp. You know, whenever you do something the first time, it's the worst. Do you remember the first time you tried to ride your bike? Yeah, that was, unless you were a prodigy, that was terrible. Or the first time you tried to drive your parents' car right into the garage. I did that on numerous occasions. Sorry, Mom and Dad. My dad isn't here today, so I can admit this. Um, And we were at like 35 kids. Now, 35 kids, I'm going to just square with you that as a pastor, inside, I'm thinking, we can't lose somebody's entire salary we do want to bless the kids, but we can't do this for 35 kids. And I, I just want to brag about our children's pastor today, Amy. Because Amy looked at us, and she, she had a beautiful spreadsheet, because she is the spreadsheet queen. Listen, if you need a spreadsheet just to calm your heart, you can email Amy. She'll send you one. She's got a spreadsheet about everything. Well, she had this spreadsheet laid out about how much money we were going to lose. <sighs> And I was inside. Well, actually, I'm going to just highlight Pastor Chris Pilado, who was really, actually, like, really taking a lot of air in that day. And, um, you know, generally speaking, camps don't fill up 10 days before they go. But I'll tell you that Amy uh, just squared her shoulders back. And at 22, is Amy 22 yet? She's 23. 23 years old, she squared her shoulders back and said, well, God, I guess, has to do it. And then Amy started dialing for dollars. And today, there'll be 100 kids in the kids' camp. Listen, to go from 35 to 100, I know this is like, for some of you, you, don't, you can't understand. W- we weren't sleeping very well, and poor Amy was really not sleeping. But I, I am so proud of the uh, great staff we have that work here. It's a, it's, do you know it's a miracle in this day and age to get people to come and work for, hey, would you like to come and sign up for work for like way below your pay grade? Like, you're smart, but we're going to pay you three. We, don't, we pay them more than $3, but essentially for the hours they work. I just, and you know, this is a funny Sunday morning because, like, all of our interns are there and all the kids' people are there and a lot of families have already gone. But I just, I am just so excited about what God is doing. Do you know, when we say yes to Jesus, he comes close to us. And, and this is how miracles happen. This is how miracles happen when we partner with God and say, God, I'm going to give you what I have, which is like nothing if you're regular. And God says, okay, 
I'm going to make that something. And some of you, maybe you were praying for a miracle last week and you just haven't seen any movement yet and you, you feel left out. I, I want to encourage you not to give up today. That God is still in the business of doing miracles. He still parts Red Seas. He still does the impossible in our lives and we can be thankful for that. And I am, like Pastor Dave said, we're believing for really amazing things to happen in our kids this week. We, we do not believe in babysitting kids. Although we do believe, like if you go out to the store, get a babysitter. Uh, but, but we actually believe that God moves and, and actually meets our kids in ways that change them forever. And, and Jesus said, listen, it's going to be a little child that leads them. And so this is why things like baby dedications are important, because we actually don't believe that people become real people when they get to some age. The age is like, what, 29? They don't become real people at 29. We actually believe that God can breathe on people, that he can move in people, that he can actually, that children can prophesy, that they can speak the dreams and, and words of Jesus. And so anyways, okay, we're getting into the book of Acts now, Acts chapter 4. The thing that's really interesting about the book of Acts is that it is both a book of action and philosophy. It shows the book of Acts the unimaginable power of God, but it also answers fundamental questions about who God is and what he is all about. And as a pastor, I, yes, want to lead a church that operates in the power of God, and we saw that last week where we believed and prayed for miracles. But I also uh, want to lead a church that thinks deeply about what it really means to be a Christian to grapple with all of the questions and to be nuanced in our understanding of the ways of Jesus. And this is important that we actually have balance in these two things, particularly as we live in this time, in this place. Um, today, I want to lean quite heavily into what it means to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And one of the primary objections to Christianity throughout the globe is the idea that Jesus is the only way to salvation. I mean, it's not usually something you lead with when you're talking to somebody about Jesus. Can I tell you about an exclusivity about Jesus? If you don't know him and you don't accept him, when you go to heaven, God's going to say tough cookies in Latin to you. Right? That's not usually a, a leading way of evangelism, correct? If you've tried that, it probably has backfired on you. And the person you tried to lead to Jesus that way is not sitting here with you. Well, they might be, but... Um, and, and um, you know, Jesus, pe people, um, people often in our society, it's an unspoken rule that you don't tell people that their religion is wrong. If you want to be a civilized, educated person, you don't say anything that would imply that your belief system is superior to somebody else's. And this is particularly true in Canadian society. Um, you can be sincere with your religion, but don't get too excited about it. Um, because... And, and, not, and certainly not so excited that you try to convert other people. That actually is an anathema in our society. I, I want to show you today, though, how Acts 4 deals with this primary objection right at the beginning of the Christian movement. Uh, and I, I, and I want to remind you that the book of Acts is set in a culture similar to ours. Rome essentially invented pluralism. Uh, where there were multiple different religions happening at multiple times and everybody was like just supposed to be good with it. And um, by the way, if even this topic makes you a bit uncomfortable, you probably are, are suffering a little bit from being in the 21st century as a Christian. It's okay that it makes you uncomfortable. What I want us to be able to do is grapple with 
uh, texts like this one from Acts chapter 4. Okay, so let's read it. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. And as they were speaking to the people, okay, so this chapter happens just after Peter and John uh, lay hands on the man who is lame and he's healed. Um, and they're, they're giving and they're explaining this healing. They're continuing to explain this healing to the uh, people who are listening. The priests, so as, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It sounds a lot like how people are today, greatly annoyed that there are Christians. The Sadducees, you see, were annoyed for a couple of reasons. Um, they didn't like Jesus because he had been a threat to their power, and he called them things like birds of vipers and, you know, just gentle Jesus names. And um, also, they rejected the concept that anybody resurrected from the dead. So the fact that, that Peter and John were saying Jesus rose from the dead, this annoyed them to no end. And they arrested them. So they arrested Peter and John, and they put them in, the, in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men that came to about, came to about 5,000. Now, we talked about this last week, that Jerusalem at this time was about 40,000 people. So we know that this 5,000 plus the 3,000 that came to, to Jesus, this is like 8,000 men. This isn't just like a, a nice little church gathering now. This is becoming uh, something that's taking over the entire city of Jerusalem. On the next, um, and with Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? In other words, Peter's saying this, are we actually on trial? Are we, are we for real on trial because somebody got healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Um, if you're actually putting us on trial, Peter's saying, for healing a guy, then let it be known that the power comes from Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the, builder, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So the way they built buildings back then, the cornerstone was the most important. Now, it still is today, but even at a greater level uh, during this time in history, the cornerstone dictated exactly how the building would be built, how big it could be, how much weight it could bear. And here is our key verse for the whole message, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. So these were not polished men. If you've read the New Testament before, you know that Peter was maybe the opposite of polished. They didn't have fancy degrees. They were fishermen. They were regular people, but they were speaking with authority and boldness. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And this tells us a little bit about Jesus. It's funny that they connect. They were like not educated people, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus must have been a lot like that. 
a plain person with authority from heaven. But seeing the man uh, who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Like they want to dismiss these guys. They want to just say just like, they can't really, because here's the guy that was like sitting by the gate beautiful for years, and he's like, hey, want to dance, everybody? Come on, let's have a dance party. It's making it awkward. But when they um, had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with this men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread further among the people... Uh, because the last thing we want is people getting healed. Uh, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in Jesus' name. So Peter says, and you can't but hear, you have to hear the sarcasm in his voice. He says, but Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Okay, so last week we talked about what miracles, why God does miracles. Um, and we talked about it's an act of love and mercy to show to the person who's suffering. It's a validation of his servants. It's a sign of the coming, coming kingdom of God. And uh, it motivates us to worship. This week we're going to see that it addresses one of the primary objections people have about Christianity, that salvation is only found in Jesus like I said before, this is not a new controversy. This is not a 21st century, like we woke up and Justin Trudeau is our prime minister and this is a big problem now. Uh, this has been going on since the beginning of time. The, the apostles are not in trouble because they privately believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, they're, they're in trouble because they convinced 8,000 men, so then you add the women and children into that, like we're well beyond 20,000 people to believe, and told everyone who disagrees with them that they were dead wrong about Jesus and that they're going to be held accountable to God for it. And the world into which Christianity was birthed was an extremely pluralistic one. This is how I know when, when I talk, so, sometimes I get to pastor's conferences and it's a little bit discouraging. You get there and, and people roll out the statistics that every church in the world is decreasing and nobody and North America wants to come to Jesus, and nobody's interested in that anymore. It's like sort of like you've been there for like 45 minutes, and you think, I should become a taxidermist or something else. <laughs> I would not be good at taxidermy, but it could be a career I could engage in. And then I start to read Acts, and I think, nope. Nope, because the world we're living in right now, we are primed to be living in an Acts kind of world. There's all kinds of people that say there's a million ways to come to God. Uh, check, we get to check that one off. N nobody wants us really talking to them about their religious belief. Check, we get to check that one. All, all the ingredients are ripe for us to be living in Acts again. So in those moments, I square my shoulders back and think, yay, I get to live. We, we get to live for Jesus now. This is amazing. So Peter's explanation deals with two of the biggest objections people have, and I want to talk about those. The first objection is this. Claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. Have any of you ever heard this before? People say, well, if you think Jesus is the only way, you must just think you're better than everyone else, seeing things that no one else sees, or you think God prefers you and people who believe like you. 
So let's answer those questions for a minute. Is, first question is this, is Peter claiming to be smarter? No. In fact, the text goes out of its way to claim that Peter is not smarter. Look at verse 13. When they saw that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now, this is kind of interesting to me because Luke, who is a physician, is writing this book. Now, if I'm Peter and I'm reading his manuscript, I'm thinking, come on, man. Come on. I thought we were friends. You had, you had to go out of your way to say I was like not the spiciest Dorito in the bag? Come on. This is like... Like, this is underscore, you know, if you've got a friend and they're not really that smart, just look ahead right now. But, like, you don't. When you're writing your memoir, you're not like, and I had a really good friend, but they weren't that smart. But this is exactly what Luke has done here. Okay, it's amazing. So, um, there's no presumption of superior intelligence at all. Peter says in verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, this has nothing to do with us being smarter. When it comes to education, you guys have got us beat, hands down. Your IQs are harder, you've got more degrees hanging in your wall than a thermometer. But you see, this guy, Jesus, you killed him because you thought he was a fraud. And then he was raised to life again, and we know that he is alive. No offense to any of, any of our massive educations. But if I have the choice to believe somebody who's got a lot of book knowledge or somebody who has been raised from the dead, I'm probably going with that way. That would seem like the more logical choice. Have, have any of you heard the parable of the elephant before? Uh, the parable of the elephant um, is the story of... Um, a bunch of blind men who came and touched an elephant. And each of them talked about how the elephant, um, they imagine what an elephant's like by touching it. So one guy touches the tail and says, elephants must have be long-tailed things. And then one person touches the leg and then elephants must have long legs. And um, this parable has been used over and over again to say, see, we're all just seeing a little part of God. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary, though, talked about this particular parable, and he said, you know, what's funny about this parable is that it doesn't really work. Why? Because the narrator is in on it. Like, the narrator somehow knows, hey, look at all these guys, just, they don't have it right. So somehow, um, the reason you say our view of God is complete is because you see the whole picture. So the only difference between what you're doing and what we're doing is that you won't admit it. Second problem with it is this. What if the elephant speaks? What if the six guys feeling the elephant are like, and an elephant has only a skinny, long tail, or, and the elephant goes, no, no, guys. In fact, let me tell you what I'm like. Do you know, as Christians, we actually believe that this is the story of the gospel, that when Jesus came and became incarnate, he actually spoke to us and said, hey, everyone, humans, this is what I am like. This is the story of the gospel that Jesus actually showed us. Peter said basically this, look, the elephant spoke. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Believing Jesus is who he says he is, is, if you ask me, 
the essence of humility. It means that we have to admit that we weren't smart enough to figure out the truth on our own, but that in fact, we needed God to show us, to actually come and, and encounter us, to reveal it to us. So the second question is this, is, is Peter saying the apostles are morally superior? No, in, in fact, right after this miracle, Peter said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at, us, stare at us as though by your own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter is still raw with embarrassment over denying Jesus three times. God's salvation, Peter taught, was a gift of grace. Just like God gave healing to this lame man when he believed, not because he had strength in his legs, or because he was better than all the other lame men. God gives salvation to those of us who believe it by faith. So Peter's claim, and our claim today, is that salvation is, that is only found in Jesus, but it has nothing to do with believing we are intellectually or morally superior. Well, some people will say this, well, I just don't like anything that puts anybody on the outs. Like, I just, how about we just go with, like, all good people go to heaven? The problem with that is that it becomes your subjective claim about what good is. So like, who are the bad people? Like if we were to, to take a poll today of all the people that we would say, no, that's, they're bad, they can't go. Do you know what we'd have? World War Fourteen here. Uh, because some of us would say, well, these three things shouldn't be the things, and you would say these four things, and what about what happened in my family there? Uh, we all have subjective claims about who is in and who is out. And none of us would say, you know what, I just think everybody should go. That, that sounds okay. That sounds okay until you start to think about serial murderers and you start to think about people that are, you want to spend eternity with that? No, you don't. No, you don't. It, so this is where it becomes an intellectual conundrum. You might say, well, I'm not religious at all. I don't exclude anyone for any reason you still have a standard as to what constitutes a good person. All religious and moral viewpoints end up being exclusive. Everyone has a line for who is in and who is out. But the gospel of Jesus is a different kind of exclusivity because the gospel teaches us that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. Not our moral record, our education, our race, our political view. God's salvation is a free gift to anyone who will repent. You see, the lame man in Acts chapter 3, is a story about us all. Did you know that according to Jewish law, uh, people who were broken in their bodies couldn't go into the temple? Leviticus 16.21 says the blind and the lame and those with physical deformities were forbidden from going inside the temple. And we're all like that. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we're all like that, that man sitting at the gate beautiful. Salvation is a gift of grace to any, any broken person who believes. I love how Tim Keller said this. He said, all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian. That yes, Jesus said that we have to believe in him. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. But this exclusivity doesn't come with a bunch of uh, caveats like you have to be some kind of way or you've got to tilt your head in some sort of way or raise your hands in a certain way or never jaywalk or whatever it is that you're mad about. 
God says, come to me, all who are weary and broken, and I will give you rest. And when you believe this, far from making you arrogant or judgmental, it makes you loving and gracious and accepting because you can say to everyone that there is room for you. This is why as a church, we we believe in saying everyone's welcome at the table. Everyone's welcome. This is why we don't say that you have to be a certain age or a certain kind of person to come to Jesus. We just say that Jesus is calling us all. You're not arrogant because you realize that you're not accepted because of your good works and not because you figured out truth or because you were smarter than anyone else, but basically because, like Jesus said, you had ears to hear him saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God healed you when you were lame. God saved you, and that should humble us all. This is why, as Christians, there should be no room for arrogant Christians. There just should be no room for it. I used to have people say this to me all the time, like, Jess, you would be much more powerful if you'd stop telling us all the things that you do wrong all the time. (laughs) Feel a lot better for your television evangelism career. (laughs) The thing is, as Christians... Uh, there's no room for us covering up. I'm not saved because I have it all together. I don't have a microphone in my face because everything about my life is perfect. I'm saved because Jesus loves me. I'm saved because he knew me in my mother's womb. I'm saved because his grace was calling me all of my life. And like we sang this morning, his goodness is chasing us down. And some of us, some of you, listen, you love Jesus, but you're like a little bit like nervous. Like I don't want to come across as arrogant, like you've got to know Jesus. So then we played this like weird little line, like I don't know if that's like really quite true. Like you should just maybe come to my church, we sing nice songs. And we get nervous. The exclusivity that Jesus calls us to is one that is gracious and full of mercy. Maybe you're skeptical here today. I just, I just want to call you to intellectual consistency. That the gospel is intellectually consistent. That it calls us to, um, to believe in a God that loves us no matter where we are everyone's view of truth and morality is exclusive, including yours. And this, I believe, is the most humble, inclusive exclusivity because it declares our understanding of truth and our acceptance before God entirely as a gift of God's grace. Okay, so here's the second objective that people make, and this is a real Canadian one. I mean, it's probably a world one, but religion is a matter of personal preference. You heard this one before? People say, look, you ought to be free to choose whatever religion works for you. If your religion works for you, who am I to say it's wrong? Sort of like the debate between Starbucks and Tim Hortons. If you like Tim Hortons, that's fine. The coffee is not actually quite coffee. It's something else, but uh, it's fine. Uh, And, like, really, we say things like, who am I to judge if you... Like, if your idea of a good time is... um, sitting alone in a dark room, or if your idea of a good time is climbing a mountain and feeling like you're going to die in the middle of it. I mean, I'm not going to judge you. 
If you love camping, great, more power to you, or you spend money to live in a tent. Um, it's fine, I'm not judging you at all. It's okay that I would rather stay in a five-star resort. Anyways, um, I'm kidding, sort of. But, but um, <clears throat> we, we, actually, we actually treat religion a little bit like it's subjective truth. I wanna give you a little bit of um, insight into the history of Western philosophy. The father of modern, modern philosophy was a guy named Immanuel Kant, and he said this, religions are subjectively helpful but not objectively true. Are you clear on the difference between objective truth versus subjective truth? Say, objective truth, the capital of Canada is Ottawa. I know a lot of us groan. A lot of us Westerners are like, yeah, yeah, we know. Um, but here's subjective truth. That food is spicy. So those of you from different parts of the world that love spicy food, give me all the spicy food. Um, you know, then you go out to eat with one of your friends that is not into spicy food, and they're like, sweating and like, like it's sort of subjective and you're saying it to yourself, that is not spicy. Um, religion, Immanuel Kant said, goes into the, in, into the subjective category and most of our society has followed along with him since then. The question is though, is our belief about God really subjective? Is the experience of salvation subjective? Is, is faith in Jesus good for us just because it works? Because it makes us more moral or gives us comfort in dark times? Look at what is being taught by this miracle in Acts chapter 4. This man is lame and cannot walk. He needed a real power to heal him. He didn't need stories about Jesus that made him feel warm and fuzzy on dark nights or parables that persuaded him to be a nicer moral person. What he needed was real power to give strength to his dead legs. And Peter says here in Acts chapter 4 that salvation is like that. Our salvation was accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't get out of the grave because of subjective pre uh, preference uh, about life, but because of God's objective power in death. And that's what's needed for your soul's salvation. Not a subjective feeling about religiosity, but objective power of new life. According to Jesus and the message of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, our salvation is not about a new philosophy or a, a feelings of comfort and niceness. It's about a sin debt that you could not pay. It's, it's like this lame man that kept us from the presence of God. It's about being dead in our sin, chained to our depravity, unable to break our addictions, and all of us were here. When Jesus came, he said, I'll be wounded for your transgressions. I'll be bruised for all the things wrong you did. The chastisement of my peace will be upon them, and by my wounds they will be healed. This is what Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Can I boil all the various questions down? about which religion is right into one question. There's only really one question that separates the gospel from every other message on earth. And here it is. Who can save us? This is the question. The problem with our society is that it, it uh, slow cooks us into believing none of us need to be saved. Because we just compare ourselves. We watch those Dateline shows with that guy saying, in the weird voice that says, he went into, and you're not as bad as a serial killer. But the, the problem is we all need saving, all of us. All of us have been separated from God. 
And if you make it through an hour, you're like in the top tier of people. (laughs) We all need salvation. If we can save ourselves, and then there can be multiple ways to God. Choose your path, do your best, try to be a good person in the religious way you've chosen. But if God is the only one who can save us, then salvation is only found in the place where he's provided it. Verse 12, let me read it again. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Okay, so there's two words in this scripture. Salvation is given, and there's no other name. So here's the question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then he was doing something that we could not do ourselves. Because the last time I checked, I've been to hundreds and hundreds of funerals, and no one has ever gotten out of a casket. And if so... If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, what does this say about how we should be living our lives? I had this, do you know when you have something that like you objectively believe in your mind, but then it becomes like really fresh and new to you? Have you ever had this experience? I was thinking all week about this message and I was thinking about how I was going to ask this question, if Jesus really rose, this is the real question, right? If Jesus rose from the grave, everything changes. And I was thinking about how sometimes I don't live like that. Because if that's actually true, God paved a way for me to have relationship with him because Jesus rose from the dead. That should change every minute, of, of, of every second, every millisecond of my life. When I feel like giving up, all I can say to myself is, Jesus rose from the dead so you could have life. So you better get on with it, Jess. When, when I feel like I'm not good enough, I just remember, Je- Jesus rose from the dead so that I, and he thought I was good enough. So I better square my shoulders back and stop living like I'm, like, woe is me. When I feel like things are not working out, this, this very profound fact, do you see how Acts is a book of, it's a book of action, but it is certainly a book of profound philosophy that actually pushes against the philosophy of our day. So do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Because if you do, it should change everything. And if so, are you willing to let him make the rules about salvation? Because that's basically what it comes down to. If he rose from the dead, he gets to make the rules. Uh, Church, when we believe this, it changes how we see the world. Okay, so four elements stand out to me about Peter's witness here. The first one is that it was bold. Peter wasn't afraid. It was humble and gracious. He let Luke write about him that he wasn't even very smart. (laughs) It was tenacious. He said this, even if you put us in prison, we'll keep preaching God deserves it and the importance of it um, matters. And it was urgent. Tell everybody as fast as we can. Did you notice that they didn't wait to like, write up a five-point strategic plan? Listen, I'm all about strategy. I'm not saying that we don't have strategy, but I do think that we have lost some tenaciousness in our grasping for strategy. God didn't love Peter because he was bold and tenacious and humble and urgent. Um, God loved him because of who he was. But I do think that Peter got a hold of this fact that Jesus was risen. And because he was risen, this changed everything. So the question is, this series is called Movement. The question is, how do we actually lean into a movement like this? This is how you start one. Think of the unlikelihood that this movement would ever grow this big this quick. It's wild when you think about it. A bunch of fishermen in a backwards part of the world, upending the world. 
and you say, it's, um, it's just not fair that everybody doesn't know. It doesn't feel fair that the person in my cubicle doesn't know Jesus. Like, I just don't think that's fair. Yep, and that's why God has you there. Hooray! What's unfair is that those of us who do know don't do all we can to get it to people who don't know. What if this is true? What, what if this is true? What if there is no other name by which men can be saved? What if the world is really lame, shut out from the temple, shut out from the presence of God? What if the power of salvation is really found in Jesus' name only? I've had people question me over the years about why we'd send people to other countries to persuade people about the truth of something that would set them at odds with their culture, maybe their family. If it's not true, if it's just subjective preference, this is cruel, cruel and wrong. But if it is true, it would be cruel not to say anything. How cruel would it have been for Peter to walk by and just leave that man, the gate beautiful? I was in college when I became, um, university, when I became aware of this. It was like deeply in my spirit. I had this um, prayer room that I would go to because I was about 20 and man, I was, you know, the the world is pulling at you but I was determined I was going to find Jesus. And I was calling out to God saying, God, if you are really real, you've got to meet me. And I had this map on this, now I think about it and cringe, it was kind of like a rat-infested basement in the middle of a major American city. And it was, but anyways, this map was there. And on this map, I don't know where, even where I'd gotten it, but, um, It was by the Joshua Project. And the Joshua Project estimates that 2.6 billion people on earth, 2.6 billion, have little or no access to the gospel. There are 6,645 unreached people groups. That's people with 10,000 or more people um, united by a common language and no gospel witness. So I knew I had three choices. And I think for those of you that know Jesus, you have three choices. You can deny it. I, I think this is what lots of us choose to do. Deny the clear teaching of scripture. Uh, you know, you sort of think there's a plan. Like, I know this is true, but there must be a plan B. By the way, in the book of Acts, when someone came to Jesus, it was always because of the proclamation of somebody's words to somebody. Even Cornelius, he still had to go to Peter. I think of my parents' story that I told a couple of weeks ago. Even they, after they had that wild encounter with Jesus. They had to have people that came and spoke the gospel to them so that they would grow. The gospel, there is no plan B. You're it. If you know Jesus, you are the plan for the 2.6 billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus. Or we can ignore it. So we can deny it and just say, well, it's not for me. We can ignore it and just don't think about it. Giving lip service to believing but living as though it's not true. That's like really uh, pragmatic atheism. Or we can believe it and embrace it. And we can be like Isaiah who said, here am I, Lord, send me. My prayer changed from God, if you tell me to go, I'll go, to God, here I am, send me. Show me how you want to use me and where you want to use me to bring other people to Jesus. This is not the call for like four special people. This is the call of every Christian. So the the question I have for you today is, are you willing to embrace the implications of Jesus being the only way?
You have to make one of three choices. You don't, you can't just stay in no man's land. And I don't know where the answer will lead you. It won't look the same. You probably won't all be missionaries or pastors, but God calls people and equips them to be doctors and lawyers and butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. But you can ask God to use your life for his purposes. And you have to wait for what the Holy Spirit will say to you. There are 2.6 billion people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. Hudson Taylor, one of the first missionaries to China, could sometimes barely stand to be in church in England where, at, where, he, as, at, where he as from and he could hear the sound of a thousand Englishmen sing the praises of God when there were untold numbers of Chinese people. He would say, would that God make hell so real to the church that we cannot rest. It's not a very popular thing to say, right? But I think it's true. Listen, if people don't know Jesus, people need to know Jesus, and we've got to get, we have to get a knowing inside, not just an intellectual sort of, like a scent, like Jesus, we're going to sing a song about Jesus, but like an actual knowing that changes the way we live our lives. All across this place, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads. A couple questions. First one, have you believed the message this is what it's all about. It's either true or it's not true. If it's not, reject it, walk away. I, I really believe in intellectual honesty. If it's not true, reject it and try to persuade as many people as you can that it's not true. If it is true, then come home to it. Research it. Chase it down. Ask God to reveal himself to you. The Bible says that if we come close to God, that he comes close to us. He is not afraid of your questions, nor is he afraid of your doubts. The God of the Bible is one of rigor. As I read the book of Job and Job yelling out to God, I am reminded that this God is not a God who is afraid. Maybe you don't know all the answers yet, but maybe you can see today that he died for you. Maybe you can get your head around the fact that he rose from the dead for you. And my second question to those of us that have said yes to Jesus, have said yes to him. What, did, what are you doing with your life in light of the global realities? If God asked you this, what did you do in light of the fact that you knew? Would you have a good answer for him? My question for us as a church is, have we taken this implication seriously? So God, I, I'm praying for every person here today that we would become people that, that really take your word at its, very, at its very essence, that we would become people that chase after the things of you. I'm praying for the person today, God, that is struggling to say yes to you. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you give them courage now to say yes say yes to the things of you. For those of us that are living in apathy, God, give us strength to move out of our apathy towards a courageous way of living. May we live each day, God, knowing that you have rescued us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you just stand all across the place today? We're going to just sing this last song together, and then we're going to dismiss you. But I am praying today that, listen, for some of us, this is something we got to go home and grapple with a little bit. 
we have to sit in the discomfort of the exclusivity of the gospel message and allow God to shape our hearts and minds. Let's sing this song together. Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church. Thank you.